You know, in the history of this church, a lot has been made of David because he was talked about in Scripture as the friend of God. You know, if you go back and look, I just did a quick search a day or two ago. We have the heart of David that was preached to us back in 2004. We have, he deserves better than that, talking about David's desire to serve the Lord and offer him something great back in 2005. The comparison of David versus Joab back in 2006. Is there not a cause? That was preached twice in 2006 and in 2015. Exceeding magnificent. What was that about? The building the house of the Lord, right? The fact that David wanted to present something exceeding magnificent. Don't you love that term? I think that's the only place it's found is right there when he talks about that in Scripture. That was preached to us back in 2008. A comparison between David and Saul was preached to us back in 2014. And then in the last year, we've had both Psalm 101 and Psalm 18 done for us. In all of these, these messages, one of the primary emphasis was on David as the friend of God. So I think we're very familiar with that. I'm not using any of that in what I'm going to tell you right now, though. I want to turn the picture around. Talking about David as God's friend should encourage us and instruct us on how we can be the friend of God. Brethren, our pastor's away this weekend. Hopefully he and our sister are having a great time of rest and refreshment. I want you to have some rest and refreshment this morning as well in this topic. While there may be some things you can take out of this as duties that you should be doing, I want you to sit back and enjoy And be bathed in the knowledge that God is our friend. No, no, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. God is my friend. And I hope each and every one of you is saying the exact same thing. God is my friend. The reason I came up with this, the things that sprung this in my mind is over over a number of months. Back in October, November of last year and continuing to this year. I was going back over the series our brother did in 2012 through 13 on the character of God. Wonderful study, brethren. Oh, you know, there's all, I hate to pick out anything because it's all so good, right, that the Lord's given us. But definitely sometime you need to think about that. You need to go back and listen to some of those messages. Pull out those outlines because there's nothing more important than knowing the character of God. And in going through that, One of the things struck me, both when Brother Jonathan did it and in going back over it, the Lord, do you really understand how good the Lord is to us? I mean, I'm talking about the people in this room who's been under the preaching of the gospel that the Lord has provided for us for a number of years. Do you realize that you heard some things taught that you will not find in any systematic theology or historical theology I can't say I've read them all, but I am a student of theology and have been since I was in my teens. And I can tell you, the way that the Lord provided it through our brother Jonathan, there are things that have never been covered, that I've never seen, talking about the relational aspect of God. A whole category, brethren, of how God relates to us. 
that nobody else, I mean, it seems to go right over their head. Poor, simple babes like us, the Lord is pleased to reveal those things too. And in thinking about that, you know, we talk about God often as our father. And he is. But I'd like us to consider him as our friend today. And you say, well, Newell, what's the difference? Why is that? Well, if you think about blood ties, family relationships, right? Well, they're just by the nature of it, you think of there's responsibilities there. There's love required there. You know, there should be special things going on with that kind of relationship, correct? But what about friendship? Friendship is not normally based on blood ties. Friendship is a relationship that two individuals choose to have a special relationship of love and sharing that they may not have with any other two individuals. You know, my children expect, and you expect of me to have a certain feeling towards my children, right? It's easy to think about it for a woman who has born those children. But a total stranger, someone who is not related to that person at all, decides, I want to be your friend. I want to stick with you through thick and thin. I want to provide support, help, comfort for you when you need it. I want to share my life with you. See, that's a very different relationship. Now, we can look at it and say that in the family relationship, God chose that, but I just like this picture of a friend. That thinking about God having chosen to have a personal relationship with me. Brethren, let's marvel and rejoice and receive comfort from the fact that God is our friend. Start over in Exodus chapter 33. Brother Jim, just like you, I love the way things come together. Because who am I going to start talking about first? The one who wrote the psalm that we talked about this morning. Moses. Over in Exodus chapter 33, it tells us, and by the way, before I go any further, I hope none of these, I don't think any of these passages are going to be new and different to you, brethren. And I... I fully admit I'm probably going to miss some passages that may be your favorites. Let me know later on because I'd love to know what those are. But if I can just spark your thoughts, if if the Lord can take some of these things to encourage you to think some more about the Lord this way, then I will have succeeded in my goal this day. Exodus 33, verse 11. It tells us that the Lord spake unto Moses... Face to face. As a man speaketh with his friend. And he turned again into the camp. Now I want to finish this verse because we'll be talking about somebody else in just a minute too who's also in this verse. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. So we're, here we have the testimony that Moses was a very unique individual. We won't do it, but if you were to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10, very end of Moses' life, it tells us virtually the same thing. Moses was very unique. With all the other prophets of God, God would speak to them in a vision. He would come to them in some sort of dream. He would relate his truth to them in a 
somewhat, you know, distant manner. Moses was not like that at all. Moses, the Lord, was right there with him. Face to face, it tells him, just like a man with his friend. Notice here how God speaks to a man as a friend. As a friend. I would challenge you, brethren, as you go back and read through the Old Testament, either this year or in the future, think about it from that standpoint. Look at some of those dialogues between the Lord and Moses. There's a lot of them where, if you think about it from this standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. Moses, many times, is complaining to the Lord. Lord, what are these people doing? Lord, you want me to do what? Okay, Father, I need your help. Oh, if you're not going to help me, I don't want to go any further. Please, it's too much of a burden. Put it on somebody else, Lord. If you're not careful, you could look at that and think, that's so irreligious. That's so. But no, if you think about two friends talking to each other, the frustrations of their day, oh, it makes perfect sense. The Lord spoke to Moses as a friend and dealt with him as a friend. Was he God? Yes. Please don't misunderstand anything I'm saying. I am not suggesting that we do something foolish as the way we approach God. But what I am saying is that we should approach God on a level of intimacy because he is, he approaches us that way as a friend. Turn over to Joshua chapter 1. I have mentioned this before because it's, it, it, it has, from a young man it made a powerful impact on me. What would it be like? Put yourself in Joshua's shoes now for a second. Here's Moses, this man who talked face to face with God. This man who, you know, brought down the commandments of God, who led the nation for 40 years. And he's gone. God's buried him out in Moab somewhere. Nobody knows where because God did it. And you've got to take his place. You've got to take his place and bring everybody into the land. That's pretty intimidating, isn't it? But remember that verse, the last part of the verse we just read a moment ago? It tells us that Joshua was imitating Moses. He was following his example and he was building that relationship with the Father. And I want you to look at now, look at the transparency of God as he talks with Joshua. To help him out on his new task. Joshua chapter 1. Starting at verse 1. Now after the death of Moses. The servant of the Lord. It came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua. The son of Nun. Moses minister saying. Read this carefully. I love this. Moses my servant is dead. Now therefore arise. Go over this Jordan. Thou and all this people. Unto the land which I do give to them. Even to the children of Israel. Moses is dead. Big deal to the Lord? No. Moses is dead. Okay, Joshua, it's your turn. You're in charge now. What would we have done? We would have put some glorious epithets talking about Moses and what he had done and how gloriously he served the Lord. The Lord just says, hey, he's dead. My work's got to go on. Joshua, you're next in line. We see here how the Lord helps Joshua get used to the role, okay? 
Did Moses do many marvelous and glorious things? Yes, he did. Well, why and how? Because the Lord was with him. Other than that, he was just a man. And I don't think they wore pants in those days, but if they did, as the saying goes, he put his pants on one leg at a time, just like we do. Right, guys? Joshua, I was with Moses. I'm going to be with you. Continue on. Look at the next couple of verses. Verse 3 and 4. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and under the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. He goes back. Because remember, Joshua was there. Every public announcement that Moses made, he was there with him. He was his right-hand man. He knew exactly what the Lord had said. He knew exactly what the Lord had, had promised. The Lord just reiterates that and says, hey, nothing's changed. Just like I did with Moses, same thing holds the case. Except you're the man in charge. Look at verses 6 and 7. Be strong and of a good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. He encourages him. He says, be strong. Go do it. He exhorts John, uh, Joshua to be strong, to do the task. Now, I've already skipped one verse. Let's go back and look at that verse and the verse at the end of this section to see one more thing. Verse 5. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses... I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Verse 9. Have not I commanded thee? What's that? Second person singular, right? He's not talking to a group. He's talking to Joshua. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Notice how Jehovah personally exhorts and encourages Joshua. I love that end of verse 5 there. As I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. I will never fail thee nor forsake thee. Now you know, brethren, how many of us would like to be able to say something like that to our friends? But if we're wise men and women, we'll probably never say that because <laughs> we know that we're but men. We fail. But what if the eternal God said that to you? Would that mean something to you? I mean, especially in the light of having watched 40 years of somebody else in that role and the Lord never failed him once. The Lord was always there, wasn't he? If you think about it, Joshua himself could remember a time when the Lord, though he didn't say it, came to his defense. Do you remember? Right after all the other ten, ten spies have said, no, we can't take this land. There's giants. Cities walled up to heaven. We can't do that. 
And he and Caleb stood up and said, they're bred for us. The Lord said, it's ours. We can take this. What are you talking about? Let's go in now and do it. What did the people want to do on the spot? They wanted to stone them. But right away, something happened. Over in the tabernacle, the lights came on. Jehovah's presence was there and everybody stopped dead in their tracks. And the Lord had a few words to say with Moses about what was going on. And what happened to those ten spies? Well, they kind of like dropped dead on the spot. You know, the Lord personally intervened to save Joshua's life. So for him, with his background of watching Moses, of having experienced it already in his life, he knew that, oh, you're not going to fail me? You're not going to forsake me? I think I do have some strength. I think I can be strong to do this task. And as you read from the very next passage on through, Joshua was always there. He was strong. He was ready to do what needed to be done. Why? Because he had the word of a friend to help him. But you know what, brethren? One other thing, I didn't make it clear. Forgive me. I'm talking about transparency now, how the Lord talks to us, how the Lord can be directly with us, sharing things with us as a friend. Here he was sharing encouragement and instruction to Joshua. You know, a good friend is transparent. He will let you know what's going on in his or her life. What about those things that could break your relationship? I mean, a lot of times, don't we kind of skirt over that, you know, and hope that nothing bad happens and we deal with it comes to it? But you know what? The Lord is so good, a friend, that he's actually addressed that to us. He's addressed what happens when something breaks the relationship. What breaks our relationship with God? Sin. Hasn't he already told us? In 1 John chapter 1, one of my favorite passages. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. This is John who was what? Was he, could we easily call him the friend of Jesus? It said he was the one that Jesus loved the most of all the apostles. I think he was a good friend. I'll point another passage which you don't, if you don't already know, tells us that yes, all the apostles, but Judas were his friends. First John chapter one, verse eight, it tells us, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here the Lord through John is being very transparent. You say you never are, have offended me or will offend me? You're a liar. I know it. Come on. <laughs> Let's get real. I know you're going to fail me. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that a friend? It didn't say he would forgive us for that instance. Right? He said... He would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I, I know we've heard this before, but brethren, think about it and remember it. Delight in it. I've got all sorts of sins in my life. If I run across something and I know is sin, it's offensive to God, I come and I confess it to him. And I have the confidence of knowing that he's not only forgiven that, but what about the... I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 100 other things that I didn't come to mind. 
where I've offended him, where I've sinned. I can't confess what I don't know, can I? But he, as a good friend, forgives me anyway. When he sees the desire of my heart, Lord, I want to have this open relationship with you. I want to walk with you. And I know this is going to block me, so Father, forgive me for this. He's like, no problem, Newell. We'll take care of that and all the other things. Don't worry about them. Isn't that a way a friend does with a friend? A friend shares his plans and takes counsel of his friend. Turn over to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Again, I don't think this is going to be a surprise to anybody. I hope as soon as I mentioned it, you might have already been thinking about it. Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 17 or verse 16. The Lord has come to visit Abraham. And he's about to leave. Abraham fixed him a nice meal. They had a good time, fellowship there. And the Lord's about to leave. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went, them, went with them to bring them on the way. Now here's the Lord sharing his plans. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? You know, Abraham, I wasn't just here to drop by and have a nice snack with you and chit-chat a while. I had a purpose in mind. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great, na- great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have, whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. The Lord shares his plans with Abraham. Now, was this just a random incident? Or did Abraham have a particular interest in somebody who might be in the city of Sodom? Yeah. He had a nephew there, right? Called Lot. We're not going to read it. But if you read the next few verses to the end of the chapter, you see that Abraham, he's concerned. He knows about the reputation of Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows what the likely outcome of God's visit's going to be. Because he knows that God's a holy God. See, he knows his friend. He knows what his friend's going to do. And he immediately starts asking, Oh, will the Lord of the universe not do what's right? I understand. It's not a good place you're going to. I know what you're likely going to do. But what if you find 50 righteous souls in that city? Are you going to destroy it, Lord? No, no. For 50? I'm not going to destroy it. Oh, right, Lord, I knew that. Oh, but Lord, what if there's not 50 there? And he goes down the number until he comes to 10. And if you read the, read the whole part of Genesis that's coming up, you'll know that that would have covered all the family of Lot if they had been righteous. If Lot was doing what Abraham assumed he was doing and teaching his children, teaching his, you know, which would include his sons-in-laws. 
as well as his daughters, about what ought to be done and what kind of life they should be living. And what does the Lord do? The Lord comes down to that number and says, nope, if there's ten there, I'll spare the city. Do you see how not only did God share his plans with Abraham, but he was influenced by Abraham. He was influenced if there had been the ten there that he was concerned about, the Lord would have spared the city. God shares his plans and even takes counsel of us when we're his friends. Over in John chapter 15, here's the verse I alluded to a moment ago. John chapter 15, verse 15, it tells us, if you don't know it by now, young folks, anytime somebody's going to John chapter 14 through 17, you're talking about a very intimate time. You're talking about events leading up to his crucifixion, actually leading up to him being taken by the Romans, by the Jews, given to the Romans to be interviewed, to be scourged, and then to be crucified. But this is a time of intimate conversation where Jesus has told them in John chapter 14, I'm going away, and it's devastating to them. And he's spending the rest of the time explaining and comforting them, encouraging them. And right in the middle here of chapter 15, verse 15, it tells us, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. He shared the family secrets. What his mission in the earth was all about. What was coming to pass very shortly. Jesus shared those with his disciples. He opened up. He shared his life, his plans with his friends. Brethren, think about it. What do we have here? We have all the plans, all the ideas, all the things that God wants to occur and he will make occur shared with us in this book. The Lord has shared himself with us, brethren. You say, well, hey, but anybody can go buy a King James Bible. Yeah, but how many of them can understand it? He's given us the understanding to know what he's revealed to us here. That's a friend. That's a friend. You know, difficulties come in your life. Problems come along. You've got sorrows. You've got concerns. What does a friend do? A friend commiserates with you, doesn't he? A friend wants to rejoice when you rejoice and he wants to sorrow and cry when you sorrow and cry. Look over in Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63, starting around verse 7. And let's take a look and see how the Lord commiserates with us. Isaiah 63, starting at verse 7. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us. This is a prophet speaking of how the Lord has blessed Israel, blessed Judah. And the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. 
For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. Children that won't lie. Children that will be good. Does anybody know any of the history of Israel? We'll get to in a minute, but what does a friend do? Does a friend count all your flaws and faults and throw them up in your face? Or does your friend overlook them? Anyway, that's not the point now. In verse 9, all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. In their affliction, he was afflicted. Now, many times, why were they afflicted? Because they sinned. And he was correcting them. Brethren, did your parents ever tell you when they were about to give you a spanking? Some form of chastisement, this is going to hurt me more than it will you. Have any of us ever said that? Have any of us ever felt that as parents? You know, back as a child... I was a pretty good child, so I said, well, I guess you got a reason for saying that, Dad. You know, you really inflict some good spanking, so, I mean, I'm not going to call you a liar to your face, Dad. You might spank me some more. (laughs) But I understand that. And here, in their affliction, their correction because of their sin and their departure from him, he was still afflicted. He didn't want to have to do that. As a good father, he did do it. But he didn't want to. He shares in our afflictions. He's afflicted when we're afflicted. Over in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, I want to go slowly so you get a chance to look at, identify, read with your own eyes these words. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Oh, in case you missed who that was, come back one verse, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who is mentioned as the word of God a few words, verses earlier, that is passed in the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our profession. For... This is where the four comes for. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Distill and boil that down. Jesus Christ lived life just like we did. He never sinned, but everything else, all the other problems, all the other bumps, bruises, scrapes that we go through in life, he went through. So that he can be a perfect high priest for us. Because he feels our pain. He feels our alienation. He knows what it's like to have friends desert him. Because on the, when it came to the time of the cross, they all ran away. Even those who boldly said, Oh Lord, I'll go to death with you. And yet, as we've already seen testified, he never forsakes us. Why? Well, because he's able but he also knows that feeling of desertion. So he's not going to make us go through that full feeling. He's with us. He commiserates with us in our problems. 
You know, again, we're human beings. As we relate to our friend, you know, we learn things about our friend, don't we? You know, we want to learn things. What are they like? What's the re- what are their favorite restaurants? What's their favorite food? You know, what, what, what do they like to do? You know, we like to talk about those things. We like to do those things with them, right? But sometimes we forget, don't we? You know, we, we don't remember everything we, we learn about our friend. But you know what? Jesus Christ is not. You're already here in Hebrews. Turn over one chap- a couple chapters to Hebrews 6 and verse 10. Just like a friend, verse 10 of Hebrews 6, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. I love this one. Isn't, that, doesn't, isn't this where the rubber meets the road? How many times do you go do things for others? How many times are you a good Christian? You're doing things for others, but they may not know it. They may not see it. They may not realize the extent of difficulty, time, and expense you've expended on their behalf. Am I I speaking out of turn? Does nobody know that feeling? Thank you. Thank you. I see a few smiles there. You understand it. God sees it. The Lord's our friend. He sees it. And he won't forget it. He doesn't forget it. He's not going to be unrighteous and forget all the good things we've done on his behalf. He remembers them. He sees them. As friends, do we make special arrangements for our friends? I mean, taking on, knowing the things that our friend likes, don't we try to arrange and do things special for them? To make special preparations for them. Give them gifts. Well... Over in Psalm 34, verse 7, tells us some special things that the Lord does for us as our friends. Psalm 34 and verse 7. Again, nothing new, is it? I hope everybody knows where we're headed. It tells us that the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Oh, but doesn't that make perfect sense that he said he won't forsake us, right? Well, that means that either he personally or one of his minor attendants called the angels, right? They're going to be there to take care of us when we need it at the right time. And remember, angels can do all sorts of things. I mean, one angel took out how many Assyrians in one night's time? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty big. That's pretty powerful. But also... Weren't there angels there at right before the cross? And what were they doing? Were they taking out people? Are they ministering? Were they strengthening and encouraging the Lord in his human nature for the task he was coming to do, which was to die and take our sins, suffering the punishment of God? Angels are there to comfort us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, sent from God, because he's our friend, and he cares about us. Over in Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3 doesn't stop there when it comes to special arrangements that the Lord makes for us. Malachi chapter 3, do you ever, you know, note special things down so you can remember them? And maybe you bring them up to others, you know? 
Oh, look, so-and-so did this for me. I wrote it down. The Lord does the same thing. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. And then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. You know, sometimes you think the Lord hears things I don't want him to hear. Well, there's times, though, when he hears things that you want him to hear. And it tells us here he does. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Okay, get the context. Have you ever, in this service, in this context, in a text, in an email, in a meeting with a brother or sister, ever talked about the Lord and rejoiced in him and the good things he's done for him? He wrote that down. Do you ever think about it? I mean, look, as, as, as human beings, I mean, I can't see your thoughts. I don't know your thoughts. But the Lord does know your thoughts. And every time you're thinking, Lord, that was so good. Thank you so much for that, Father. That was so kind of you to do that. It's being written down. Verse 17, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. They shall be mine in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Brethren, yeah, we can go through some difficulties in life. We can go through some pain and suffering. But it's never going to be what it could be. If we're thinking on him. If we're talking about him because he's our friend. And he remembers those things. And he always takes the edge off of anything we've got to go through. That's what he says right here. Please, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. He's written a book and he's going to remember us. And he's going to take care of us and he's going to deliver us. You know, he does have a book where our names are written down. It tells us in two places in Revelation, you know, that we're going to want him to read that book, right? On that last day because it's going to keep us in those robes of white on his right-hand side, the side of blessing. I've already alluded to my next point. That is that God, just like a good friend, a good friend will overlook your faults, right? I mean, I don't know about you guys. You guys are pretty good. I'm pretty obnoxious. I mean, I understand, you know, over time, you know, how obnoxious New Eastland can be. And so, I mean, I can, I can see at times, I've seen at times when people, you know, I've, I've said something I've realized, mm, wrong words, too hard, shouldn't have been said. Why did you do it, idiot? And everybody smile and, 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 you know, and just, or maybe just totally ignore it. The Lord does that for all of us. Because you tell us any of us that have the right words, the right thoughts at any point in our life, unless he's given them to us. The Lord overlooks our faults and he gave us a beautiful example. A beautiful example. My brother Paul, I think, knows where I'm going to. Genesis chapter 17. Consider this. You want to see a friend at work? Two passages of Scripture we're going to look at. Genesis chapter 17. Here the Lord's talking to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah had a great idea. Hey, the Lord promised that you're going to have a child. Honey, I'm too old. Why don't I give you my handmaid? And you can have a son. And he does. Ishmael is born, right? 
And the Lord's coming to Abraham to talk to him. And Abraham's that proud papa there with his son Ishmael in the background, right? And verse 15 of chapter 17 of Genesis says, The Lord said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come of her. And what does Abraham do? Oh, yes, Lord, I knew that. You were going to do that, right? Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? You know, if he just stood there and thought that, it'd be one thing. But he fell on the floor laughing. And Abraham said unto God, do, do, do you think that he had the lesson yet? What did he say when he stops his laughter and stands up? Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He's still wanting Ishmael to be blessed. And the Lord said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him. And God went up from Abraham. I hope you saw the emphasis with which I read that, because I can't think of any other way that conversation went. Oh, Ishmael, I said, Sarah, are you doubting me? Pretty strong interchange there, brethren. But, but let's come down to the New Testament. Let's come down to the New Testament to our inspired apostle, Paul. Is he going to tell us anything wrong? Is he going to do anything but give us the right slant on things? I don't think so. We would call ourselves gladly Paulicians, wouldn't we? Because we follow how Paul tells us how to interpret Scripture. So come on over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Good doctrinal epistle, right? The the meat of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, starting around verse 17. Actually, start with verse 15. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Here's our faithful father. Paul's going to point back to that instance we just read about. But how is he going to interpret it? Who against hope believed in hope? that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. 
He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also, he was able also to perform. Do you see a disconnect there, brethren? That's a friend viewing his friend. Because in every other aspect of his life, Abraham was faithful. And Abraham did believe. And after this, Abraham did go into Sarah. And a child was conceived called Isaac, who was born at the right time. And he knew from that point on, that is my covenant son. So much so that when it came years later to offer him up, he thought, well... Lord, if you want to take him this way, you must want to show me a resurrection, right? Because this is Isaac. This is the one you said. And you want me to kill him as an offering to you. So you must be ready to raise him from the dead. Go for it, Lord. Is that not a friend overlooking the faults of a friend? Brethren, is that not comforting? I know I don't know all of my sins. But the ones I know, I know I know a whole lot more than anybody in this room and all of you put together. And the fact that all of those faults, flaws, stupid, crazy, however you want to describe it, things that I've done, the fact that the Lord is willing to overlook all those things and still call me a son and still want to walk with me in fellowship right now. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. We read Psalm 106 last night, didn't we? Psalm 106, I just want to read a couple of verses at the tail end of there. Brother Eric referred to them, talking about the offering up their children to Molech. But look at verses 43 through 45 of Psalm 106. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their afflictions. When he heard their cry and he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captive. See, even in their captivity, which was the cause of their sin, he still made it lighter on them than it could have been. He made their captors to pity them. You know, over in Jeremiah 31, verse 20, it tells us that the Lord's bowels were troubled for Israel in the middle of something like this. Over in Hosea, chapter 11, it tells us that he would not execute the fierceness of his wrath. Here, let me read that to you. It's too good. Hosea. Very first of the minor prophets. Hosea 11, verse 8. Listen to these words, brethren. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? These are both Canaanite countries, peoples who he destroyed. Mine heart is turned within me. My repentance, my repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fiercest of my mine anger. I will not. Return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man. The Holy One in the midst of thee. And I will not enter into the city. He's the Holy One. 
And yet, he's not going to crush them like they deserved. Why? Because he chose to be their friend. Is any of this comforting to you, brethren? Yes. Yes. It's extremely comforting to me. He wants to be a friend, that is, wants to be near his friends. Right? I mean, this is somebody you've chosen to love. Someone you've, you, you study their patterns of life and their habits and their likes and their dislikes, and you want to be with them. You want to share life with them, don't you? What did John say in his first epistle as he opening it up? Why did he write? Why did the dearest friend of the apostles Jesus Christ have, why did he write his epistle and his gospel? So that we can have fellowship with him. God wants fellowship with us. And he sent his favorite apostles to write us and tell us about it. Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Again, it's in the middle of that good section. John chapter 14, verse 1. I alluded to this earlier. Let's read it for just a few verses. Let not your heart be troubled. Talking to his apostles, because he told them he's leaving them. He's got to go away. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. There again, that's that friend being transparent. That friend telling details of his life and his plans to his friends. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Notice he didn't say, I'll receive you into the places I prepared for you, those mansions. No, I'll receive you to myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. You know, brethren, the glory of heaven is that Jesus is there. Does it have streets of gold? I mean, literally or figuratively? Is it a glorious, wonderful place? Yes, it is. Is the tree of life there, meaning we'll never die. We'll always be alive forever. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no tears. All these wonderful things. Are all those true? Yes. But what's the most glorious thing about it? Jesus is there. And I'm going to be there with my friend. And my friend will welcome me with his open arms to come into his presence. And to share things with me that I didn't know in this world. Probably couldn't know. And that's what we'll be doing for eternity. Come on down. The same chapter. John 14. Come down to about verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. Hey, that's the tune of discipleship, isn't it? If you love Jesus Christ, you're going to keep his words. But that's not my focus. Look what he goes on to say. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. This is where John got the whole notion of writing the first few verses of his epistle. Because Jesus had told him and his brother apostles that we're going to come make our abode with you. We're going to live with you. And think about it, brethren. I mean, you and me, us, if we're friends, you know, it's a totally different relationship we're talking about here 
Because I can't get inside your head directly, right? You can't get in mine. But he does and can. Through the person of the Holy Spirit. He's right there inside me. So that when I talk, right? And I say something that maybe is not right. Well, the Holy Spirit reinterprets it. And rearranges it. So that when it comes to the the Father's ears, it's just perfect. It's exactly what he wanted to hear. Is that not a friend? Overlooking, taking care of us, coming to abide with us. Reinterpreting everything we say and think so it's pleasing in his sight. It says that he delights. The Lord delights. Don't we all delight in a friend? Can God delight in a man? Yeah. Psalm 18, verse 19, it tells us, He brought me forth also into a large place. Doesn't that well describe the blessing of the Lord? He brought me into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Now, I'll let you say that was David at this point, okay? Because I'm going to connect it back up to say we've studied about David on how to be God's friend, right? We know how to do that. Here's the result of being God's friend. He delights in you. He delights in me. Last couple of points here, and we'll close out. A friend is loyal. Friend is loyal. I always get choked up on that because for whatever reason, you know, God makes us all different. Loyalty has always been just near the top of the list for me about being a friend. Whether it's me trying to be a friend to someone else or when I see somebody being that way towards me. And the Lord, oh, oh, can you compare our loyalties with him, with what he's done? Again, I have to go back to Joshua, verses 5 and 9, where he says, just like I was with Moses, I'm with you, Joshua. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That was his oath of loyalty to him. You know, he tells us that his love towards us is everlasting over in Jeremiah 31, 3. Here, though, set your eyes on Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 and 5. Again, brethren, my unabashed, not hidden goal is to encourage you and to lift up your hearts in the knowledge of God as our friend. If this verse doesn't, I don't know what can. Hebrews 13, verse 5, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The eternal God said he's always with me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Corollary is the next verse. So then we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. For my purpose today, change one word there. The Lord is my friend. He's always with me. It tells us in Psalm 27, verse 10, when my father and mother, again, back to my original point about blood ties. Blood ties are supposed to be so tight, right? Can there and have there become instances where blood ties break? Well, the Lord said, or David said, rather, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. 
Over in Proverbs 17, 17, it says that there's a, a friend, that a friend loveth at all times. I will present before you the Lord Jesus Christ as the best friend ever. Because he loved us even when he was taking our sins on the cross. When he was having his fellowship with the Father, which had never been broken, broken on the cross. Because he was suffering for our sins. He did that for us willingly. He knew in advance. He looked to it. It tells us, I think it's over in Hebrews, that for the joy that was set before him, he despised the shame of that. The joy of having your fellowship with the Father broken? The joy of having all of us as his friends. It tells us, too, that there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother over in Proverbs 18, 24. Well, if you don't have any other friends that are like that, you've got one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, he makes special communications to us. A friend wants to communicate with his friend, right? And he'll make special efforts to communicate and share things with his friend, even when he can't physically be there. And brethren, think about it. Again, I want to tie this back in with David. How much of Scripture did David have? How much of Scripture did David have? Pentateuch, you know, the first five books that Moses wrote. Maybe Job, you know, he may have had Job. He may have had Joshua. Most of the rest of the, you know, the kings and all that stuff was written. Well, it recounts him, so it was written sometime later, right? All the other prophets came later. How much of a better friend to us is the Lord? All of this is ours, brethren. All of this and the understanding of it, he's communicated to us. Maybe now I will do a little bit of exhorting on this. Is, are the words of that friend any, anything to you worthwhile? I would say Job was his friend. Wouldn't you agree with me that Job was the friend of the Lord and the Lord was his friend? He tells us over in Job twenty two twelve that his words, the words of the Lord, and Job was further up, further back than David. Job had far less than David had, far less than we do, yet he said, I esteem his words more than my necessary food. Not the cake and the ice cream. We're talking about the necessary food for life. Psalm 94, verse 19. Psalm 94 and verse 19, it tells us, In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. And this is talking in context here. The psalmist is talking about the many trials and tribulation he goes through in life. In the midst of all that, my thoughts within me, the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts are what delight my soul. The comforts that my friend shows me. Over in Romans 15, 4, it tells us that by patience and comfort of the scriptures, we should have hope. God want, doesn't want us to have a hopeless life. Beautiful, beautiful points you made there, Joshua, about that. He wants us to have hopeful lives. He wants us to have joyful lives. And he gave us a book so that we can have that. How much are you reading it? How much are you studying it? How much are you finding those nuggets to pull out when you have difficulties to say, Oh, Lord, thank you. I've got hope now. Because you promised this to me. Your words are always true. You said you'd never leave me nor forsake me. And you said right here, 
Oh, Lord, that delights me. Oh, here's a beautiful passage. Again, in that section over in John, towards the end, John 17, verse 3. Why does God give us eternal life? What's the whole purpose of eternal life? Is it to be escaped from hell? To not be in the lake of fire? Is that what, what eternal life is for? I'm glad I see some shaking heads, shaking no. This is eternal life. That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Amen. That's the purpose of eternity, to know him. Amen. He's the eternal God. We're finite creatures. We could learn a new fact every day. We could learn thousands of new facts every day and still never touch, never scratch the surface of what our friend is like. And that's what eternal life is going to be. Knowing him. Learning about him. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 told us that John wrote that we might have fellowship with him and fullness of joy. And over in John 15, just a page back, I close with this. A few verses. John 15, starting at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Fullness of joy and a fellowship with God. Walking with our friend. This is my commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. And did Jesus Christ do that? Jesus Christ proved himself to be the truest friend in this world. Because he laid down his life for us. Ye are my friends. If you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. The Lord, if you've got a heart to hear and to understand what we've just read, you're the friend of God. You're the friend of Jesus Christ. Brethren, rejoice in that knowledge. Rejoice that you have an eternity set before you to know Him, to learn about Him, to bask in his mercy and kindness. That's what it tells us over in Romans chapter 9, right? The vessels of mercy. We're going to be the example through all eternity to the angels of the mercy and the kindness of God as he reveals himself to us in all his kindness and goodness and love. May all those things encourage us. May those things drive us the love of Christ, constrain us that we might serve him the way that he wants to be served. And may Jesus Christ be lifted up and magnified. Amen. Please join me in standing. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for being our friend. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in these things, to glory in these things, and redouble our efforts, Father, that we might show ourselves to be your friend. As we just read, Lord, that we might love you, love your commandments, and do them each day of our lives. Father, we thank you for the food that has been prepared for us by loving hands, 
Bless them, Lord, for their efforts. Bless us, Lord, that the food as we partake of it would be the strengthening and nourishment of our bodies at this time. Grant, Lord, that our conversation would be sweet, that it would be about the things of you and your kingdom, and that you would be pleased with everything that we say. For we ask all of these things in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.